Good evening, everybody, and welcome to tonight's broadcast. We are talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. But before I even get into it all, let's rejoice. Uh-oh, I see him being a little flashy right now. Let us rejoice that the the, the computer is back. The machine is back in action. That's right. The MacBook has been fixed. I got a call from Apple. They said, hey, it, you know, the guy, Justin, he told me it was going to take two weeks. It hasn't taken two weeks. And here we are. Everything is good. All is right again in the world, especially because we got that really big show coming up. And I wanted, I want everything to go well with that show. We don't want any hiccups because that's going to be a really good one. And even just, <clears throat> even just talking about it right now makes me nervous. So I want it to go well. I want it to go well. So um, tonight's show, we are talking about um, music history, in particular, punk rock music history, in particular, um, New York punk rock history. And, you know, the thing is, here's the deal with history. By the way, I if there's any technical hiccups, please leave a comment. Let me know if something is not right. If the picture doesn't look good, if the sound doesn't look good, even if I'm coming in choppy, but my audio is clear, I just need to, I need to know these things. Very important. Um, you know, they say that uh, history, what's that old saying about history is written by those who win? I'm, I'm messing that up. History is recorded by the winners. And while I don't really think that exactly applies to punk rock, history is written by the people who write the books. You know what I mean? And because of that, like things get left out, like lots of stuff gets gets left out. You know, um, band, all sorts of bands get left out. And we can go on and on about that. One of the most egregious errors that, you know, being bands like the Misfits or even the Bad Brains, um, the Stimulators, you know, uh, one book that has a really great history. This book, I can't believe this book is nearly 20 years old now. Let me show you how old this book is. Uh, <laughs> there's a coupon. <laughs> There is a coupon for $1 off Marlboro Reds. That just goes to show you the last time I cracked open this book. So, yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, but the idea that like history is won by is written by the winners and people get left out, things get left out. Um, and you get these like these great tombs, these books full of history and knowledge but leave, you know, certain things out. But one of the books that is, you know, really a definitive history on a subject, you know, even though it does have that bend to it. I mean, you can't include everybody. You can't put the the whole kitchen sink in. The book has to have some, you know, streamlined, narrow vision in sort of describing history. Um, but one of those books is PKM. I can't say the actual title of the book because you know why um the video of you specifically is really choppy like an early 2000s webcam ha, yeah i can tell 
So my system is being really taxed right now. Okay, whatever. We just got to roll. Just got to roll with it. Hopefully, it will calm down. Do I have anything else open on here? No. All right, we got to just keep going. We just got to keep going. It is what it is. That is really, really frustrating. I wonder if that has to do. I wonder if that's Chrome. It could be Chrome. It could be. Could be a lot of things that are causing that to happen. I don't know. So in any case, uh, PKM is one of those great books. Like if you don't know anything about punk rock, I appreciate Runner. I appreciate it truly. Thank you, thank you. Runner's Dial Zero is giving me the the skinny on um, uh, the the situation with the webcam. I'm not pleased right now. I'm not pleased. It has to be. I'm using a different webcam, as you can tell. It's a clear webcam, even if I'm coming in choppy which is just so frustrating um whatever so pkm is written by legs mcneil and jillian mccain and a uh, little fun fact i tried i it did not work i tried to convince legs to do a show on my youtube channel and we had a very we, we talked for about an hour and i thought it was going to happen didn't didn't pan out into anything but what could have been, it could have been really great. Who knows? Maybe it will happen someday. Um, in any case, Legs went out in the 90s, having been around in the 70s for a lot of what's in this book. Legs went out and started talking to and tracking down people who were there for this history and recorded thousands of hours of testimony. Uh, basically almost kind of creating it's like a book it's what's known as an oral history and basically it's kind of like a documentary it's like a documentary in book form and this one specifically talks about punk rock's history and there's a lot of people that you know want to say oh it, it happened first here it happened first there i, I mean to an extent on you know on a certain on technical levels they might be right but this really does lay out the history as it happens i mean it really does it it pinpoints specific things what's funny is you know the pistols and the ramones they don't even make they don't even get they don't even arrive until about halfway through the book you know Generally, we think of the, the Ramones as the beginning of it all. And, you know, I mean, they're there. But this book really starts, really starts in like 1964. And it goes till about 1982. And, you know, it doesn't, it's not like a super detailed chronological look at the history. It just sort of drops in at different points and tells, you know, really iconic uh interesting stories you know um it's because of this book when the when the surviving dead boys reunited at the C, at cbgb's gallery to perform some shows in 2005 it's because of the photos in this book that i recognized uh jimmy zero of the dead boys it was funny there was a line wrapping sorry they weren't they were the the backstage was in cbgb gallery they were playing CBGB's proper and there was a line out the door and I had read the book about, you know, I had read the book and I'd read the story about Steve Bader's, uh, you know, tainting the chili, if you will, that, that Hilly used to make. 
and I asked him about it and he laughed. Oh, we were both smoking cigarettes. And uh, I came up to him. I said, Hey, is it true? And I recognized him because of the pictures in this book. And he said, come with me, Jimmy zero from the door. He said, come with me. And he brought me backstage. And I just, you know, sat backstage with all the dead boys, all the remaining dead boys. They all weren't talking to each other. I sat with Jimmy and his girlfriend and he entertained me for a good half hour, 40 ish minutes. And it was, it was delightful, man. He was the nicest friggin' dude. And I wish that I could like track him down. I know he's like, kind of, he's not, he's, I don't know. He doesn't really have an internet presence. Angus is red PKM. He knows, he knows what's up. Uh, I too have read the book multiple times. This book, this book got me into the Ramones. This is how I discovered Johnny thunders. This is how I discovered the New York dolls. This is how I discovered Iggy pop and the, the MC five. All of it came from reading this book. It's just a great read, man. It turned me on to so many um, counterculture. Uh, this is how I, you know, discovered Lou Reed's music. Uh, this is how I discovered I didn't really care for the Velvet Underground. I don't really care for the Velvet Underground, even to this day. Although rock and roll was, a, uh, no, Loaded. Loaded is a masterpiece record. It's a masterpiece record. But I prefer solo Lou Reed to the Velvet Underground. Whatever, that's neither here nor there. And so, yeah, it's just like, like I said, it's just a tapestry of stories and it's really great. I cannot recommend if you are into punk rock and punk history, like this is the book to read. And this is what, you know, really sort of solidifies to me, you know, why, you know, the Stooges are the Stooges and why they are so important and why the dolls are so important and why the Ramones are so important. Um, it, it shows me why Patty Smith is not that important. You know, and it's not, you know, again, it's, it's one, it's one perspective from a guy who was there legs McNeil, right? Because he, he was there. He did punk magazine with John Holstrom, who I had the pleasure of interviewing many years back. And they were just sort of on the scene. They helped, you know, legs, uh, supposedly allegedly, uh, coined the word punk as it relates to music. And I can't can't believe I haven't read it yet. Is Howie in it? If you're referring to Howie Pyro, Howie Pyro is in it uh, a few times, briefly. Sid Sid Terror, please. Sid friggin' Terror. What? What did Sid Terror? Sid Terror invented the devil lock. He invented punk rock. He invented everything. This Sid Terror guy. I don't dagger. I don't know where Rue is. I don't know. But we're we're gonna do the story. Okay. Enough of an introduction. So what we are discussing tonight with Didi Ramon versus Johnny Thunders, um, you know, I, I first became aware of this sort of like, I, I, I wouldn't call it a rivalry, but this, uh, I would call it a grudge, man, like a, a deep ancient um, musician on musician grudge. Uh, and it's done in a way where like, there's a story earlier in the book that sets up what is going to happen later on in the book. And we're going to read both those stories. And then surprise, surprise, we're going to read a, a third story. So there's three, there's three parts to this story. And the third part I've never read. I found this online while doing some research and yeah. What's up, Dan? Dan says Patty Smith over Patty Smith. I'm not a big fan of Patty Smith. From my understanding, allegedly, allegedly, she is uh, an anti-Semite. 
despite, you know, her guitarist is Lenny Kay, who's like, you know, Jewy McJew face. Oh, I should probably shouldn't have said that. I'm a Jew. I just be aware. I am a Jew saying that. Um, and I'm saying it as it's Lenny, Lenny K is he's very Jewish. He's very Jewish, much like me. I'm very Jewish. Um, okay. Enough. <laughs> Great out the gate, Jeff. Great out the gate. Is the picture getting a little bit better, by the way, or is it still being ridiculous? Am I still choppy or am I a little less choppy? Um, I don't, I'm not familiar with the other Patty Smith, Dan. I'm going to have to look into that. I, I don't know. I don't know. I I am absolutely a Larry David Jew. Yes. Uh, no, no, no. Well, Larry David is the, he is the Moses of my Jewish people. He is our, he is our Moses within. <laughs> that's uh we love, I love Larry David. He is, he's the best. He is the best. And yes, he, he is the leader of my people. The, the bagel, the bagel Jews. He is the Moses of the bagel Jews. L'chaim. All right. Come on, guys. Well, let's get serious. We're going into lecture mode here. I'm going to lecture to you. Okay. So we're actually, we're going to jump into the book. We're going to start. We're going to establish what is going on. So uh, the cast of characters. First, you have Didi Ramon. We all know who Didi Ramon is. It just made me spit out my coffee with that one, Jeff. Of course. I'm I'm so glad. I'm so, I hope I didn't get it. I hope you didn't get it all over your computer. <laughs> Angus was there for my three-hour dissertation on why Nosferatu is like low-key an anti-Semitic. Uh, I don't even want to say that other racial word as it relates to um, African Americans because it's not uh, an appropriate thing to say. But um, that Nosferatu is the Jewish equivalent to that. Um, <laughs> he's the crumb, the crusher king. All right, come on, come on, come on. All right, all right, no more, no more distractions. Let's talk about this. So, all right, so here's what happens. Ready? You have mom, what's up? This is not my mom, not like my mother. This is mom Longoria. How are you? Um, all right, guys, no more. I'm not looking at the comments. I'm just going to talk. By the way, can someone tell me how my picture is? Is, is the picture good? Is the picture bad? What's going on here? I need to know these things. Okay. 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 So you have Didi Ramon, Didi Ramon of the band, the Ramones. And then you have Richard Hell. Richard Hell is another guy, Richard L., half Jewish, from down from Kentucky way, either Kentucky or Tennessee. And he came, he came to New York to be a poet. And he falls in with a band called Television, Tom Verlaine, who just passed away, R.I.P. Tom. And they they started off as a band called the Neon Boys. This is just a little background. And they put out two singles. Or they put out one single on Orc Records, Terry Orc. He was this guy. I think he worked with Peter Crowley at Max's Kansas City. I don't quite remember. Um, but uh, they put out a single, Neon Boys. And I believe it had Love, Co Lung, Love Comes, Love Comes. Love comes in spurts. Love comes in spurts. That's what it is. Oh, Richard Hell's from Kentucky. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Mom. Mom, I missed you too. I'm glad you're here. You're, e you're Eva Longoria's mom. Exactly. Precisely. That's the perfect way to describe it. Leah Flower. Okay. So so from down from Kentucky Way comes Richard Hell. 
He's in a band called the Neon Boys. They put out a single. Um, they they turn into this band called Television. Hell splits. Hell is like, you know, Richard Hell, who still lives in New York City. I don't know if he still lives in. He used to live in the same building as Allen Ginsberg and Harley Flanagan on the Lower East Side. I don't know if he's still in that building, but he is still in New York City all these years later. Been living in New York for over 50 years, man. He's watched that city go through, you know, all kinds of changes. Changes. Um, and you know, he would leave television and he went, he'd go on to join in a band with Johnny Thunders. Johnny Thunders was in the New York Dolls. We talked last week or whenever that was. We were talking about how Malcolm McLaren took over management for the New York Dolls. Uh, they went on that like red leather tour, you know, spouting, you know, commun communist iconography, right? And uh, they broke up. When they broke, part of the reason why they broke up was the drug habit. Johnny Thunders had a drug habit uh, along with Jerry Nolan, who was the drummer. And those two dudes, they went back up north to New York where they could easily, you know, cop dope. And they started a new band with the guitarist from this band called the demons. Someone who I actually had the pleasure of knowing while he was alive and interviewed him was uh, Walter Lure, who, who, and they formed a band called the heartbreakers with Richard Hell. So Richard Hell left television. They all linked up. This was around 1975, right? Richard Hell would eventually leave the Heartbreakers and form his own band called Richard Hell and the Voidoids, featuring Mark Bell, aka Marky Ramone. Right before he, um, right before, uh, sorry, having a, a had a brain pothole. Right before, what was I? The hell was I just talking about? Right before he be become Marky Ramone and join the Ramones and do Road to Ruin. Sorry. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. Whether, okay, Dagger, whether Dee Dee is a, a better songwriter or not, we will discuss later. Jody Ramone, how are you? Hello, Alex. Alex saying amen. Um, so, but at this time, Richard Hell was in The Heartbreakers, where our story begins, and we're going to get into it. And him... And, you know, the other thing you have to remember, if you look at the pictures in this book, PKM, you will see that everybody hung out with everybody. It really was a scene. You know how sometimes like they loop things like look at grunge, like grunge is a bunch of like is a bunch of like corporate whatever, like uh, corporate music executives deciding that this is a, a musical genre, much in the same way that they did with New Wave. And they're trying to package it you know, because Nirvana is big. So those, all those bands, maybe they were kind of contemporaries of each other, but they didn't come from like a tiny close knit musical scene, the way that all the bands did in the, in the New York punk scene in the mid seventies in the early seventies, mid seventies, where, you know, you could see Iggy pop and Blondie and Joey Ramone and Didi Ramone. There's David Johansson. There's Johnny Thun. They all knew each other. They're all playing those clubs, there's a club circuit, there's CBGBs, there's Max's Kansas City, there's the Mud Club, the Peppermint Lounge, Dance Interior, like all these variety clubs. And I'm sure like I'm Mothers, 
Um, you know, and they're all around at different times. Like they kind of like some of them overlap, some of them don't, you know, um, club 57, um, right. You know, talking heads were, were, were CB's band. Some bands were Max's Kansas city bands. Some bands were CBGB bands. There was, that was kind of a divide, you know? And then there were some bands that could do both that could play both, both places. Um, so that's where our story that sets the that sort of sets the um the whatchamacallit the uh that that's the setting for our story. The Lower East Side of Manhattan was a you know a burnt out, you know, drug den. You know, it was very easy. That's where people go to get drugs. That's where all the artists like to live because the rents were cheap. You could actually be a musician or an artist and somehow make your rent every month. You know, um, Alphabet City is not what it is today. I mean, everything's gentrified now. Everything's you walk down St. Mark's and it's like really, really, really sad. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dagger. He says he says from us deserves at least minimum wage for this. Dagger, I throw I throw up the metal horns for that. That's that's wonderful. We'll go through all the comments, guys. I promise I'll go back and I'll do comments afterwards. So, you know, so that's like the setting there's, you know, crime and dope and, you know, there, there's this beautiful, beautiful musical scene. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Ben says that I rule. I can't, I, I, I'm too vain not to post this comment. One of my alter egos is Richard Vane. Yes, that's right. Richard Vane. Vane is spelled V-A-I-N-E. Richard Vane. <laughs> Richard Vane. He's uh he's my producing partner actually one of my closest collaborators. All right, so enough enough talk. It's story time, everybody! Everybody, it's story time! Yay! <laughs> everybody gather around on the carpet. Everybody gather around on the rainbow carpet. We're gonna talk about punk rock, kids. <laughs> okay so this is chapter 23 and it's on page 209 so if you have the book follow along with me it's on page <laughs> no don't leave don't leave um chapter 23 this is called chinese rocks okay um philip philippe marcade so Really cool, actually. Um, he is that dude is like around. That dude's told some really interesting stories. Some girl walked up to me at Mother's, and I was wearing one of those Indian scarves, and she said, "Whoa, that's just like Keith Richards." I got to take off the glasses. I cannot. I can't see anything. I can't see anything. Sorry. Sorry to ruin the mystique. Now you can see where my eyes dart. She took my scarf and put it around her neck. After a while, I was asking for it back, and then she introduced herself. She told me I have some dope, but I don't really know how to shoot up. So if you shoot me up, I'll turn you on. And kids, for those of you who don't know, turn you on means to get you high. Um, so we went to her house on 23rd Street, and it turned out that she only had like half a dime bag. There was no way I was going to get high on that. So I said, 
no point in me doing it. But I did shoot her up, and that's how I became friends with Nancy Spungen. Woohoo! Is that the introduction of Nancy? By the way, I have not read this book in in nearly has to be eighteen years, maybe since I've read this book. That might be the first appearance of Nancy Spungen on chapter twenty three. Um, Elliot Kid. The first two times I met Nancy Spungen, I slept with her. She started talking to me at Max's, and I said to myself, "This is not going to happen." But you couldn't shake her. I mean, Nancy was an effing pain in the ass. I think our scene was probably the first scene where the guys and girls hung out as friends equally. Even so, Nancy was a whiner. I mean, it was hard to like her. We used to sit up and make jokes about her. She always kept coming over to my apartment. She wanted to cop. She just kept bugging me until I said yes. Um, and this, yeah. Richard Lloyd of the band television. I'll try and call out. I don't know who Elliot Kidd was. Let me see if I could find. There's a cast of characters in the back. Um, Richard Lloyd is from the band television. And Elliot Kidd, sorry to interrupt the reading, but it's kind of cool to know who these people are if you can figure it out. This is alphabetical. Alphabet City, kid, kid, kid. Elliot Kid, musician, lead singer. Oh, here you go. Uh, Elliot Kid was the lead singer uh, and guitarist of The Demons, along with uh, Walter Lure, who we just were discussing. In any case, Richard Lloyd. About that time, I was getting very, very popular. It, sorry, about that time, it was getting very, very popular to be a junkie on the Lower East Side. In the morning, you would see people lined up for like a hit movie in a line 50 feet deep with people that sold dope running up and down the line saying, have your money ready. We'll be open in 10 minutes. So it's like a McDonald's, you know, no singles. You got to have five or tens and they would have a menu like today we have brown dope, white dope and co cocaine you know, got something special today, you're all going to be real happy. I mean, you'd be talking to your neighbor, like reading the newspaper, waiting for the dope house to open. It wasn't sleazy, drooling, sick people. It was sculptors, painters, mailmen, dishwashers, waiters, waitresses, and musicians. Totally normal. And I used to go like between sets. I'd run out and do dope and then come back. This is all important because this establishes this builds the story of what's going to happen between dd ramon and richard hell and what dope signified in that scene because everybody was on it philippe marcade sometimes it would be very scary copying at the dope house you go to these abandoned buildings you'd go in and it was completely dark and you climb a stairway where half the steps were missing you can't see anything at all complete darkness and then you'd get to the landing and there'd be one candle on each floor. You'd climb two or three stories and then suddenly, bam, you'd run into someone. There's all these people. Now there's a line of 200 people going up the stairs. So you wait in line in complete darkness while some mother effer would say, stay in line. Everyone would be real quiet because they wanted their dope. When you finally got to the top of the stairs, there'd be a guy behind the door. There'd just be a little hole in the door and you put your money in the hole 
and then and then you would say the initial C or D if you either wanted Coke or dope. Then you'd get a little bag back and get the F out of there, hoping they'd say green light. That means that you could walk out. There was no cops on the street. If they said red light, then you had to stay in there. And that was really scary because it wasn't until years later that I realized it was a big part of the rush. Richard Lloyd. Richard Hell and I would cop. Oh, sorry. Richard Hell and I went to cop once and got caught by the police who pushed us into a building and wanted to strip search us. They found a needle on hell and said, where'd this come from? Richard said, Richard Hell said, I'm an antique needle collector. Then he proceeded to tell them he was a masochist and all the holes in his arms were there because he liked them. He was like, you got a problem with that? I stick things into myself. I know I'm sick. So they just took our heroin and let us go. After the cops left, hell was like, God damn those effing cops. They only wanted our dope. Now we have to cop again and we don't even have a syringe. Um, what was I just about to say? You know, funny Iggy pop is one of those. Iggy pop is a survivor, man. He's like, of all the people in the scene, so many of them are gone. They're like all, you know, I mean, listen, people get old, people die of old age. A lot of them died young. A lot of them died from drugs. A lot of the people who did drugs died from them, meaning that drugs was the was the symptom of their death. Richard Hell is one of those rare dudes who was just so knee deep in that lifestyle, much like Iggy Pop, and somehow managed to survive. And he's still here, man. And you know, it, I see it from time to time. I'll see somebody post on like Facebook or something and be like bumped into Richard Hell. You could just bump into him. You could be at Union Square and like turn turn around and just like Bigfoot, there's Richard Hell. He's just there. He's still around, man. I mean, he's still around all. He's like 70 something. And I'll tell you, I've seen pictures of him recently. And, you know, I mean, he's aged, but I got to tell you, the guy looks amazing for his age. Like absolutely like, like it's it's almost as if he like sleeps in a in a bath of formaldehyde or something. Because the guy doesn't age, man. He just has re I don't know what what that's all about. Um really, really, really crazy. Um, all right, let's let's keep reading here. I'm gonna go to the comments afterwards. Richard Hell, the junk scene was just like the SEX. It was all a lark. I mean, it had this nice taint of forbidden, yet at the same time, nobody really thought of it as dangerous. You knew that technically, even if you got a habit, all you had to do was stop for two weeks and it would be gone. That's what you'd look, that's what you looked at. And you thought you can maintain that kind of approach to it for four or five years before you were in too deep. It was just like fun, but you know, it was so much fun that it definitely accelerated. Things got, things go better with dope. Arturo Vega. If you know who Arturo is, um, in the Ramones version of Chinese rocks, they don't say, Hey, is Didi home? They said, Hey, is Arturo home? Arturo designed the logo. He was the lighting director. You know, he, he was the art director he, you know, that again, that logo that they put on all those t-shirts and got all that t-shirt money from that was, that was Arturo's design. Um, and he had a loft that he, at various times he lived with Joey and Dee, Dee and the Ramones used to practice at that loft. 
And it's kind of like, you know, and he lived in it. He lived in that loft for like 47 years until his death. I mean, he lived in that loft for a long time, man. Um, Arturo Vega. I didn't like dope. I didn't like it at all, but I did it a couple of times with Didi. The first time he shot me up, I couldn't move. I couldn't get up. And I felt like throwing up. I was so drowsy and sick. I was talking like you hear junkies talk in the street. Didi said to me, oh, I can tell you're really high. I can tell by your voice. I wish I was talking like you're talking. That means you're really feeling good. I said, oh, dear. Oh, no, I can't. I can't get up, Didi. Didi was like, oh, great. Ha, ha, ha. I was like, no, I want to vomit. Another time we did it, and he did me first, and then he did himself. And then he started turning blue. I got really scared. Didi asked me, do you think something is happening to me? I said, I don't know, Didi. You should, you should know better than me. He wasn't unconscious or anything, but I could see his skin turning rubbery and getting bluish, and I freaked. I was like, oh, my God. Um, I'm only saying this because I'm only saying this because they're both dead and I don't actually know this for a fact. Although I do know from someone else from this scene, I was in the car when he said it, it was me. It was that person. And it was Billy Rath of the heartbreakers. And I was driving and this person said that, you know, Didi used to sleep around and, you know, it's been documented that Didi might've slept with Danny Fields and, um, this other person who I will not name because they are still living and I don't want to be disrespectful to them in, you know, talking out of turn about their private life. Um, but that, uh, uh, Arturo Vega alleges in another book that he did that him and Didi, you know, slept together a few times, which is fine. I mean, nothing wrong with that, but it's just interesting. People don't, you know, realize that, you know, uh, Didi was, uh, uh, Didi was a Morris, I guess would be the word. Pam Brown. The first time I saw the Ramones at CBGB's and saw Joey Ramone, I said, this is the guy for me. I fell madly in love with Joey. I just packed my bags and moved right in with him. DD and Connie lived in the bed by the window and Joey and I would be in the bed every night with the covers over our heads, hoping nothing hit us because DD and Connie would be fighting. Connie, AKA Connie Ramone. Uh, Connie was really nuts. I would walk over to CBGB's with Connie and the next thing I know, she'd be dragging me out of there, hailing a cab. And then she'd had ripped off three pocketbooks from poor punk girls, hops in a cab, goes through the purses. You know, she was really nuts. Um, Dee Dee wasn't gay. I mean, who cares whether he was or wasn't gay? I like, who cares? It's like not a big deal at all, but you know, whatever you want however whatever you need to tell yourself like i mean dd slept with dudes in the same way that he slept with girls like you know i mean he just he that's that was just his thing and you know three three different two of which one of which i will not say publicly but you know danny fields and arturo vega both slept with dd and you know dd used to what do you think 53rd and 3rd was was written about when DD used to, you know, he was a hustler, man. I mean, <laughs> like Chinese Rocks is my favorite song by the Ramones. However, I prefer the Heartbreakers version more. 
yeah, I, I like the Heartbreakers version more as well. Yeah. <laughs> Dee Dee basically wrote a song about banging dudes. So, yeah, but like, whatever. Like, it doesn't, it's cool. It's fine. It's just, it's, it was just, I'm j the only reason why I brought it up was because it's just an interesting, it was just an interesting footnote because Arturo Vega was talking about shooting up with Didi and it immediately made me think of like the fact that like, you know, at some point, I don't know if it was at this time, but that those guys used to sleep together and that was all no, nothing. That's it. Um, Arturo Vega. I let Connie and Didi and Joey Ramone move into my loft on second street. Joey wasn't a problem. Joey was a great guy. We got along really well. And I liked Connie. She used to call me, Oh, a Toro, my hate instead of, Oh, a Toro, my love. She would say, I could hate you, but I can't. She'd say that because I used to tell Connie the truth. I'd say, Connie, you're too old. You know, if Didi has any success, he's going to leave you. Ha ha ha. I'd say you should stop doing these drugs. Maybe then you will uh, have a chance. Maybe that would create a real bond between the two of you. But even so, he'd probably dump you anyway, you know, because you're too old. But Didi didn't last here very long because Connie and him were fighting a lot. I couldn't take any of that. I came back from a show one night and Connie had freaked out. They had had a fight and they had thrown my jars of paint at each other. There was paint all over the place. And then they had burned the floor with candles. So I told Didi he had to move. All right, so now here's the meat of the story. Ready? Richard Hell, me and Didi hung out for a year or two, mostly the cop dope. So I'm guessing this has to be this has to be 1975. In 1975, 1976. That's when this is taking place. Because Richard Hell has to be in the Heartbreakers. He leaves in 76 to form the Voidoids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like 75, 76, somewhere in there. Me and Didi hung out for a year or two, mostly to cop dope. You could get a bag of dope for three bucks. That's what the standard price was. We'd cop on the corner of 12th Street and Avenue A. There was a crowd of about 10 or 20 Puerto Rican children about the age of 13 who were the runners. So we'd give them three bucks and they'd bring back a bag. A runner generally is, uh, you know, someone who basically their job is to transport money and exchange it for drugs. And they are a layer of protection for the dealers because if the runner gets caught and here's the thing, the runners, he's talking about how they were Puerto Rican children. If the runners are under age, they're not going to have legal troubles the way that they would, if they were, you know, of age and getting caught slinging dope bags. So it was like that. That was kind of like what the system was, right? So they'd give them three bucks and they'd bring back a bag. I felt an immediate affinity with the Ramones. I dug them and didn't have any reservations about them. They were just the way they always were. Lisa Robinson hired me to write about them in the hit Parader, the first article about them that was ever published nationally. I didn't know that. Well, I did know that because I read this in the past, but I forgot. I, I completely forgot about that. So Richard Hell wrote the first ever article that was published about them nationally. All their songs were two minutes long, and I'd ask them the names of all their songs. They had maybe five or six at the time. I don't want to go down to the basement. I don't want to walk around with you. I don't want to be learned. I don't want to be tamed, and I don't want to something else. And Dee Dee said, 
We do. <laughs> and Didi said, we didn't write a positive song until now I want to sniff some glue, which is just like, is just like, I, I love, I love that song so much. It's so simple. It, it really just rocks. It just melts your face off. It's so easy to like bop around, you know, I did not jump around, not hop around, bop. I am specifically using the word bop in this situation. It's something that you just want to bop to. Bop till you drop. Bop till you drop. No matter what, you just can't stop. Bop till you drop. Um, <laughs> so he didn't write a positive song until now I want to sniff some glue. But they were just perfect, you know. But Dee Dee was the only one of the Ramones that I could ever hang out with. I didn't even become good enough friends with any of the other ones to know much about what they were like, except that Johnny was serious about his baseball cards and Joey was into his English singers and Tommy was a serious producer guy. It was pretty obvious that Dee Dee was the madcap. He was so funny. Dee Dee was one of those guys who was really wide-eyed dumb, but his dumbness was so smart that you never really knew how much of it was his style of dealing with the world. He played it. Everything he said was really on the money and funny. And you can see in interviews, there's a great interview uh, with like, you know, talking about the Ramones. He's like, he's like, um, he says, uh, he talks like this. And he says, that was nothing to do. So we just sniff glue and he just, yeah, like, I don't know. I, it, what, what Richard hell describes in this book, this idea that like, he's using like this sort of like fa facade of being dumb to sort of like almost, you know, uh, manipulate the outside world. Like, Oh, you think I'm really dumb, but I'm actually smarter than I look that sort of thing. Um, it's really spot on in that interview. Like, really, really, really. We had nothing to do, so we just sniffed some glue. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's pretty, it's pretty interesting because you think of Richard Hell as kind of like this intellectual and you look at like the Ramones and you don't think of the Ramones as intellectuals. And the way that you always knew what a Dee Dee song was from a Joey song, very simple. Dee's songs are generally about mental health. So if there's if it has to do with mental health, it's a Dee song. If it's a romantic song, nine times out of ten, it's going to be Joey Ramone. Joey Ramone writes the romantic songs. Dee Dee writes the mental health sort of songs. Um, Eileen Polk. So Eileen Polk, by the way, for those of you who don't know, Eileen Polk. She used to manage a band called The Blessed and members of The Blessed, Howie Pyro, Billy Stone, and Walter Lure at one time. Eileen Polk was also um, very good friends with The Misfits for a short period of time during the horror business years, year. So like 1979, she was always, she was palling around with Howie and Howie was really good friends with Glenn and Jerry. So she took a bunch of pictures. You've seen her pictures, Eileen Polk's pictures. And um, by the way, for anybody, so I wrote 
I wrote a song and I recorded a song called Christmas in the Crypt doing my Dee Dee Ramone impression while singing. And it was taken from his book, I, uh, Lobotomy. I, I, there were, there were no lyrics, but there was a song title for a song that Dee Dee claims that he wrote in his head, but never recorded and never like played out. And it was just, it was just called the title was Christmas in the crypt. And I was like, that's so brilliant. And I wrote a song just from that title and recorded it the way I would imagine that it would be like a DD, a DD song. So check that out. That's on the, the channel. Um, so Eileen Polk is now talking. I was really attracted to Didi Ramon because he was in a band and I liked going out with guys in bands. Uh, I mean, he was really cute. He was adorable, but I'm sure there was a part of me that just wanted to create chaos to steal DD away from Connie. Oh, wow. It was good drama. And I had the perfect excuse for doing it because Connie had come to me and said, that's my boyfriend. I might've stayed away from him, but because she beat me up, I felt like I had full. So you see how every like part of that chapter is now all coming together. We had to, they like each legs and Jillian, they do such a great job of establishing who these people are and then wrap, you know, like wrapping it all back together. Right. Um, but because she beat me up, I felt like I had full license to ruin her life. She ripped my dress off and she embarrassed me. So the next time we ran into Connie, I beat the, the S out of her. Uh, Dorian Zero, Dee Dee, and I were all getting drunk at this bar on the corner of 11th Street and 6th Ave. Dorian left. It was just me and Dee Dee. And then Connie showed up. And they used to call her Connie Ramon. Um, I don't know how the F she knew where we were. She just had this radar. She could just find Dee Dee wherever he was. So she came into the bar and she said, oh, Dee Dee, I just want to tell you that I'm really happy that you two are together and I still love you, but we can be friends and blah, 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 blah. And then she left. <coughs> so I said, to, I said, Dee Dee, she's waiting for us outside. Mind you, Connie used to date Arthur the Killer Kane. Arthur Kane was the bass player of the New York Dolls. And when things went south in that relationship, she took out a large knife and she almost cut off Arthur Kane's thumb. And then she ended up with Joe, with uh, Dee Dee as Connie Ramone. She was, you know, she was a prostitute too. Um, or, you know, as they say, an SEX worker, right? Um, so I said, Dee Dee, she's waiting for us outside. And he said, no, 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 she wouldn't do that. And of course she was. We came walking out of the bar. Connie came running over and starts cursing at Dee Dee. He was drunk out of his mind and Connie pushed him. He hit his head against the grill of a big old car, a Cadillac. And then he hit his head again on the pavement. He was knocked out cold. So I thought I'm going to have to win this fight or I'm going to get really hurt. So I didn't hold back because the first fights, because the first fights we had, I held back because there were other people around and I thought, they would protect me, but this time there was nobody. Dee Dee was knocked out to the ground, so I beat the S out of Connie. I just got her down on the ground, and I started punching and kicking her. I wouldn't let her get up. Once she was down, I made sure that she stayed down, and I made sure she didn't touch my hair. Once I got her down, I knew if I just kept kicking her and punching her, if I just kept her from getting up, I'd be okay. 
So I beat her up and I was really happy that I did. Dee and I managed to get away. The only thing Dee ever said about it the next day was it's really bad to get knocked out like that. When you're drinking, you can lose the oxygen supply to your head. I said, yeah, right. Dee it's really, it's really bad to get knocked out like that. When you're drinking, you can lose the oxygen supply to your head. Richard Hell, Didi called me one day and said, I wrote a song that the Ramones won't do. He said, it's not finished. How about I come over and I show it to you and we can finish it in, if you like it. So I believe he brought an acoustic guitar over and I had my bass. Basically, the song was done, but it, he just didn't have another verse. I wrote two lines. That's all. It was basically Didi's song. I uh, though I think the lyrics and the verses I sorry though I think the lyrics the verses I wrote were good. So Richard, so the things are about to get a little complicated. Richard Held basically admits that it's Didi's song. Didi had it completely finished, and Richard contributed two two lines to the song, and that was it. But the Ramones wouldn't do it. So Dee Dee went outside of the Ramones to collaborate on it with Richard Hell. Dee Dee Ramone says, the reason why I wrote that song was out of spite for Richard Hell, because he told me he was, no, I can't, sorry, I, I lost it, I lost it. The reason why I wrote that song was out of spite for Richard Hell, because he told me he was going to write a song better than Lou Reed's Heroin. So I went home and I wrote Chinese Rocks. I wrote that, I wrote it by myself in Debbie Harry's apartment on First Avenue and First Street. Then Richard Hell put that line in. So I gave him some credit. Arturo Vega. The Ramones talked about Chinese rocks and didn't want to play it because Tommy Ramone said, no drugs, nothing about drugs. That's not a Ramone song. Give it to someone else. Although, funny enough, they did Carbona, not glue, as well as now I, uh, uh, now I want some, uh, sorry, now I want to sniff some glue. So it's like they wrote, uh, two songs about huffing, you know, on the first and second albums, but they're not going to do a song called Chinese Rocks. I don't understand. And yes, Leah, I always heard, I always heard that um, that it was Johnny Ramone who vetoed it. But uh, apparently, here, according to Arturo Vega, it was Tommy. It was probably Tommy and Johnny, right? Because Tommy, when Tommy was still in the band, Tommy was kind of like, you know, he might not have been necessarily calling the shots, you know. I mean, Johnny really assumed power over the band after Tommy left, but Tommy was like, you know, the manager kind of guy. Tommy was the one who put the Ramones together. We've talked about that. Richard Hell. The controversy about the song comes from the fact that we played it in the Heartbreakers. I brought it to the next rehearsal exactly as it was done by the Heartbreakers for all those years. I would sing it because it was a song that I brought in. And it became famous in New York. But after I left the Heartbreakers, they kept playing Chinese rocks. And in the end, and then they ended up recording it and they put all of their names on it, though nothing had changed about that song. They just added their names to it. Johnny Thunders didn't have great songwriting instincts. He always had the greatest touches and the most catchy kind of ideas, but he had nothing to do with Chinese rocks at all. So there's Richard Hell setting the record straight. The song comes into the Heartbreakers. This is where Johnny Thunders enters the picture. The song comes in from Dee Dee to Richard Hell 
to Johnny Thunders. Johnny Thunders runs with this song because Chinese Rocks makes the like I, I don't wouldn't I don't think it puts the Heartbreakers on the map. I mean, they were already a renowned and revered band because of the New York Dolls. Jerry Nolan and Johnny Thunders were of the New York Dolls. They were like New York royalty. But the Heartbreakers were like the creme de la creme of the New York bands. And it's funny is a lot of these, you know, older fogies will be like, they're not a punk band. The Heartbreakers aren't even a punk band. They're just a rock and roll band. Why do you keep calling them a punk band? Because they played in punk rock clubs and, you know, <laughs> we're in punk rock bands, you know, like the New York Dolls aren't like considered to be like a straight punk band, but they were. I mean, they were like the first punk band along with the Stooges. You know, um, I don't know, man. Like, you know, what's what's your deal? Why are you so upset about it? <laughs> like, like the, those guys would probably tell you the same thing. As a matter of fact, if I, I interviewed two of them. I interviewed two of the Heartbreakers, as I said, Walter Lure and Billy Rath. And they both, you know, acknowledge what punk is and that they were part of punk. And that, you know, again, they were a, I have a whole if you if you like the Heartbreakers, check out my video on Billy Rath. Um, I knew Billy at the end of his life. And um, I made a video about my experiences with Billy Rath and RIP, RIP Billy Rath and Walter Lure and all the heartbreakers, whatever. So there you go. There's Richard Hell solidifying the truth about the situation or what is most likely the truth. I mean, it is the truth. Come on. Uh, Jerry Nolan says the heartbreakers were still trying to get it together, but then Richard Hell started getting unhappy. In the beginning, Richard thought that he was going to be the front man. He had a special type of style, but he just couldn't overpower Johnny. It got so that Richard actually had the nerve and really thought that he, we would get rid of Johnny. I just effing laughed. I said, Richard, I'm sorry, buddy, but do you really think I would leave Johnny for you? You're the only one who will have to leave. Richard, hell, it did start chafing me how moronic the songs the Heartbreakers wrote were. They sounded good, but, you know, it's like going steady. Can't keep my eyes off you. Can't keep my eyes on you. I couldn't figure out what it meant. Um, Roberta Bailey. It didn't help the heart. She's a photographer. It didn't help the heartbreakers that Richard was going out with Sable, who was Johnny Thunder's big girlfriend from the New York Dolls days. Uh, Sable. Silver Sable, I think, or Sable something. She was one of the premier groupies, man. I mean, she was with everybody and not just like punk rockers. She was with Iggy Pop. She was with um, a dude from, I think she was with Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. I mean, everybody you could imagine. David Bowie, they all were with Sable. Um, So... Richard Hell was going out with Sable, who was Johnny Thunder's big girlfriend from the New York Dolls days. I'm sure it was no accident on Sable's part that Johnny breaks up with her and then she starts going out with the guy that's in his band. And I think Richard was into having this rock star girlfriend. Sorry, her name is Sable Star, right? Sable Star. Sable Star says, I was really still effed up over Johnny Thunder's. It took me a long time to get it together. I met Keith Richards and it was really weird. It took a great person like him to show me what a great person I was. He's such a beautiful person. I was in Atlanta with Keith and I had no money and I wanted to come to New York to see what was going on. I was also curious about Johnny. I hadn't seen him for a year. 
He called me the first night I was here and said, do you want to go out with me? It could have been heavy, but I was in such a neat place. I knew who I was. I was with Keith Richards, not him. So, I mean, she was literate. She was with everybody you could imagine. Um, so I went out with Johnny and he introduced me to Richard Hell. And I fell in love with Richard and moved in with him. Eileen Polk. I really didn't want Dee Dee doing dope because of Connie, but I just figured that that was her way back into his life. And I wasn't going to tell him that he couldn't do it, but every once in a while he'd try to stop and he did stop a few times, but he always went back to it. He'd stay off a couple of weeks, but Connie would always be waiting for him with a big pile of dope in her pocket. And that's how she'd get him, you know? And the sad, the sad truth is, I mean, that's what took out. That's what took Dee Dee out, man. He went in for one more hit. It's a story as old as time, man. Didi Ramon, Connie was very naughty. She had a thing about knives and broken bottles, and she'd just go at anyone if she was in the wrong mood. And one night, she went after me. Nancy Spungen used to live on 23rd Street. I was with her one night, and Connie came and found me in bed with Nancy. I mean, Nancy slept with everybody. She slept with Steve Jones. She slept with Sid Vicious. She slept with um, uh, Elliot Kidd from The Demons. She slept with uh, Dee Dee Ramone. I mean, she slept. I mean, she slept with everybody, man. Um, so Connie came in there and found me in bed with Nancy. So Connie stabbed me because I was effing Nancy. But Connie didn't give a crap because she just stole Nancy's collection of silver dollars and sold them to get some dope. Connie just said, let's go get high. And I said, all right. So we left Nancy there. Danny Fields. Danny Fields might be one of the most important people to, you know, punk rock as a whole. Danny Fields is responsible for he he, you know, he starts this book. The book starts with Danny Fields. You know, he 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 was around, you know, he was handling Jim Morrison and then he dis, didn't discover but he signed the Stooges and the MC5 to Electra Records and managed the Stooges. And then he went on to manage the Ramones. I mean, Danny Fields, one of the, just so friggin' um, so unbelievable, such an unbelievable, unbelievably important person who is still alive and kicking. There's a great documentary about him if you want to know more about Danny Fields. Highly recommend it. <laughs> um, Danny Fields. I love the drama between Dee Dee and Connie. That's what boys and girls are supposed to do. Stab each other. Sure. I mean, you're not supposed to die, but short of dying or missing a gig, it's all right. <laughs> Dee Dee Ramon. Connie might have brought me closer to death a lot of times, but in a way she was keeping me alive. No one else did. I had all that responsibility. I had to play every night and no one gave a damn if I had a place to live or if I have any dope or if I had anything to eat. Connie did. She was all I had. Connie was, it sounds like, you know, despite their dysfunctional relationship, Connie was a home for, for Dee Dee Ramon. Um, so we're going to just take a small break right now uh, and talk about our sponsor, Riot Stickers. You can see the big, beautiful banner that Sharpie Riot, CEO of Riot Stickers, printed up for me. Riot Stickers is the official sponsor of the from us channel and as you can see here here are some stickers these stickers 
they look at this man they have uh, a, a really nice vinyl finish to them they have uv protection which protects them for the sun they they will last for a good five years which is really really long for a sticker out in the elements and indoors who knows how long they could have last maybe forever um and we're doing a special promotion with riotstickers.com only at this url down in the comments you can find it down in the comments riotstickers.com backslash from us f-r-u-m-e-s-s you can get a thousand stickers for 79 dollars boom boom thousand stickers for 79 dollars that's seven cents a sticker you're not going to find a better deal than that it'll be nearly impossible to find a deal that good but you can get it at riotstickers.com because riot stickers is the bomb so let's play our little video. Remember, go to the link, check it out, get your stickers today. Riotstickers.com. I'm just going to take one minute to address a comment. Yes, this book was going to be a movie. I didn't know Johnny Depp was supposed to be in it. Um, I had always heard that the movie was going to start with Johnny Thunder's funeral. That was the only detail that I remember when I heard this was going to be a movie. It was going to be a movie in the mid-90s, all the way through the early aughts. They were talking about it becoming a movie, and it never happened, probably for the better. Probably could make a really good miniseries. Um, although, I don't know, man. It's kind of hard to cast all those people. It wouldn't be easy to do. So that's chapter one of our story. And now we're going to talk about chapter two. So now fast forward years and years and years later, right? Richard Hell is out of the picture. Richard Hell was just that element that introduced, you know, and Didi Ramon and Johnny Thunders obviously knew each other. And Richard Hell introduced that song into the the heartbreakers and the heartbreakers run with that song and for the duration of the heartbreakers existence you know they you know sporadically would get together and they would do what was known as a rent party they'd play you know gigs for rent money they do a weekend of dates at max's kansas city two sets a night six sets six sets and they would you know have enough money for dope and rent or something like that that's what they would do and it was always in you know different configurations when Richard Hell left, that's when Billy Raff, my friend Billy Raff, that's when he joined the band. And that's when, you know, they went to England. They uh, recorded the LMAF, Like a Mother Effer album. Uh, L-A-M-F and D-T-K were graffiti that you would find around New York. And uh, like one meant like a mother effer and the other one was uh, D T 
K, which means down to kill. And you'd see that around. And so they wrote their, their album was called L A M F for, uh, uh, abbreviated for that. And that's like, you know, an iconic record, um, great, great classic songs. You know, if you're into New York punk rock, that is like, you know, that's a premier album. That's like an iconic album along with like the blank generation, you know, along with the, the first New York dolls record, you know, there's so many Ramones dictators girl go crazy. Um, these are all classic iconic albums uh, from that period. And so, you know, 77 finds them They go on tour with the pistols and the damned and, you know, and the heartbreakers kind of like they, you know, they, they're, they're dysfunctional. They become, a, they become, you know, they are a notorious heroin band. You know, they're notorious. Johnny Thunders was synonymous with doing dope and, you know, Walter Lure to accept Although Walter Lure was another one of those dudes who survived. I mean, he outlived everybody. He was the last heartbreaker standing. He only recently passed away, man, but he, you know, he went from that sort of same. He was just like Richard Hell in that regard, you know, and he just outlived them all. Um, Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan both died very close together to each other. But before Johnny Thunders died, he tried putting together a band with Dee Dee Ramone and Stiv Bader's of the Dead Boys, and it was going to be called Whores of Babylon. And they all met up in Paris to, uh, you know, I could literally tell the story off the top of my head, but I'm not going to because we have the book right here. We should read it from the book. We should be thorough. So we're going to. It's a very short chapter. And then we have the final part, the final piece, which is from a very uh, specific point of view from a guy named uh, Stephen Trimboli. And that will be the last bit of, of, the, of this coverage of this sort of lore. So fast forward. So Dee Dee Ramone and Johnny Thunders have have uh, have had a, a you know really you know they're they they've known each other all these years. It's I think it's the late '80s by this point. See the late '80s or early '90s. Stiv also died. Uh, Stiv died in '91. Got hit by a car and a bone fragment chipped off and uh, killed him in his sleep. Um, <clears throat> but uh, you know. In all that passing time, the Heartbreakers had taken incredible ownership over a song that they would eventually record. Chinese Rocks was recorded by the Ramones on end of the century in 1980. So they waited, they they recorded it about three years after um Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers really made made that song famous and an iconic, famous song, an anthem, if you will, Chinese Rocks. And I think that. You know, by that time, the Ramones, they're still trying to chase commercial success and they need every, you know, song in their arsenal. And they finally, you know, acquiesce and decide to, they decide, hey, we're going to record Chinese rocks. It's time for us to do it too. So they did it. They did it. So, right. So now we're fast forwarding all this time later. This is chapter 41 that we were at chapter 23. And now we are at chapter 41 and, um, <clears throat> and it's called born to lose, which is a Johnny thunders, which is a heartbreaker song, but born to lose and love comes in spurts. I believe are the same song. Is it, is that? Yeah. Born to lose. 
living in the jungle it ain't so hard i always get this wrong what is the song that's the same as love comes in spurts love comes in spurts love comes in spurts has the same music as a heartbreaker song and it's because stems from when richard hell took his version of the song and he did love comes in spurts was it love comes in spurts or was it something else man i have my i am so discombobulated there is a song that was clearly written by Richard Hell and Johnny Thunders, or they both used it and recorded it in their own kind of way. I think it was Born to Lose, and I think it was Love Comes in Spurts, but I'm not. Liars Beware, maybe? One, thank you. Thank you. It was One Track Mind. One Track Mind and Love Comes in Spurts are the same song. Same music, at least. One track mind all the time. I got a one track mind for you. All right. <clears throat> Dee Ramon. I got to take off my glasses. So many years have passed now. We're now way into the future. Connie, Connie is, is dead. Um, I don't know. People have died since that last chapter that we read. Dee Ramon. Rock and roll on automatic Rock and roll on automatic sort of desensitized my rebellion. We just toured all the time without a break. For 15 years, I couldn't take the van anymore. Me sitting in the back, looking out the window. No one ever talked to me. Johnny and Joey didn't talk for years. There was a time, and the re we know, though, the reason for that is because of Linda Ramon. Johnny and Joey didn't talk for years. There was a time where we had a bus that had four separate compartments. Johnny would sit in one with his girlfriend. Mark would sit in there with his. Joey could sit in there with Linda, and I'd sit in another one. And if we'd see each other, it would get really ugly. We couldn't even walk out of the bus together. We couldn't even get our keys to the hotel room together. We couldn't, uh, we couldn't look at each other. A lot of things were irritating me about the Ramones. The thing that was driving me crazy was playing that damn Pinhead song every night. My teeth are chipped because I used to have to sing the chorus of Pinhead. We had a roadie who weighed 300 pounds. His name was Bubbles. And he would dress up in a pinhead dress and a pinhead mask. But he was so fat that when he would jump on the stage, the whole stage would shake. And the mic where I was singing would come banging into my mouth. I hated that damn song. I'm so glad I don't have to play it every night. The only good thing about it was that it came at the end of the show. So that cheered me up a little. Doesn't that sound just miserable, man? I mean, it just sounds so miserable to me to hear to hear that. Um, I would think, let me play this damn thing so I can get out of here. There was another song, Glad to See You Go. When that used to come on, come up, I'd say, oh boy, three quarters over. I can get off the stage and go to my hotel soon. Mind you, the Ramones are playing an hour-long set, right? Like, come on, dude. Like. I mean, I guess when it's when it's bad, it's bad. I don't know. I mean, it's not like they were it's not like their guarantees were probably all that great. You know, it was probably grueling, but you get to be on the stage, you know, you get to be on the stage one hour a night rocking out. And that's your that's your job. I mean, that's a pretty cool job. Whatever. In any case, I can't wait to get off the stage and go to my hotel room soon. I was also sick and tired of that little boy look, that bowl haircut and that motorcycle jacket. I didn't want to be a little boy. I wouldn't grow up. 
four middle-aged men trying to be teenage juvenile delinquents. I was just getting sick of playing in the revival act. It made me feel like a phony standing there in a leather jacket and torn jeans. Like I used to dress when I thought I was a worthless piece of crap. It's got a good point. Instead, he'll become a rapper named D.B. King who only who doesn't write any rap songs. He only writes punk songs like The Crusher. Just remember in life when Didi Ramon tried to write a rap song as a guy named D.D. King, he ended up writing The Crusher. Just remember that. Bob Gruen, very famous photographer who took photos of everybody you could imagine. He knew the New York Dolls. He knew the Len you know, John Lennon and Yoko. He knew Led Zeppelin. He was with the Pistols on their final tour. I mean, everywhere. This guy was everywhere. Uh, truly a rock and roll legend, Bob Gruen. I ran into Didi one night at the Cat Club after he left the Ramones. He said, I have no wife, no girlfriend, and no band. I'm all alone. Nobody loves me. I said, Didi, I love you because I do like him, but it didn't help him much because he was feeling very alone and very cut off, and he had cut himself off. But Toro asked me if they should let him back into the band, and I was saying, definitely, he's the Ramones. He's Didi Ramone. He's the Ramon. He's the most Ramon of all the Ramones. He's he is the rock and roll guy. He really is. He's the most Ramon of all the Ramones. He really is. Arturo said, yeah, but it's so hard with Didi in the band. He's been so much trouble for all of them over the years. Sorry. It's been so much trouble for all of them over the years to take care of Didi. The Ramones felt like they could never throw him out because he had done so much. He had written all the songs. Yeah, because he had done so much. I mean, he was like kind of like the, the driving force of the Ramones song-wise. Come on, man. What a thing to say. He had done so much. He had only written all the song derp, and he had been such a pilot to them. He was a founding member of the band. But since Dee Dee had left on his own, they didn't have to take him back, and they didn't want to. They just felt like he had dropped them flat and he had left them cold in the middle of a tour and cost them a lot of money without seeming to care. And they felt like they really didn't want to go through that again. That's why they wouldn't let him back in the band. Did he want to be back in the band though? I don't, I mean, in his book, he does, he does not want to, he talks about how he does not want to be in the band. Uh, Laura Allen. I was living with Didi Ramon right after he left the Ramones. The first year we were together, we bought a gun from some Spanish kid on 10th Street. Didi would always carry a knife and he always had brass knuckles and all kinds of paraphernalia. But I didn't really worry about the brass knuckles or the knife, but the gun I was kind of scared of because one time me and Didi went to cop some pot on 10th Street and this cop followed us. He went, okay, over there against the, he went, okay, over there against the wall. Okay, what do you got there in your pocket? And Didi had the gun on him right in his jeans. And the cop frisked Didi. And I thought, oh my God, forget it. Didi's going to jail. I think carrying a gun like that is a one year mandatory prison sentence. So the cops searching him. So the cops searching him, right? And out comes the pot. And to think now in New York City, like there is a weed vendor on every corner. It's like so effortless if you want to, you know, get high on weed. Um, 
I think carrying a gun is like a one-year mandatory pro- prison term. So the cop searching him, pot comes out. This cop was an undercover cop, a plainclothes cop. And he said, oh, you used to play in the band Ramones, didn't you? You look familiar. Aren't you Didi Ramone? And Didi was like, yeah, I am. <laughs> the cop says, well, how are you? And he starts talking about how he saw the Ramones when he was 15 at this college. I was dying. I really thought he was going to find the gun. But thank God the cop did not feel the gun when he frisked Didi. So the cop took the pot and said, if I catch it down here again, we're going to have to take you in. Syndra Fox. I let Johnny Thunders come stay with me when I moved into Jack Douglas's apartment. There was a navy blue sofa there. And of course, I put Johnny on the sofa because, man, he can't sleep in my bed. You're my friend. Sleep on my sofa. Cool. So one night, Johnny was sleeping on the sofa, and I came out of my room, and the pancake makeup Johnny used to wear had rubbed off, and and it looked like there was all this dye all over him, all black and blue blotches, big black and blue blotches on his skin, because Johnny Johnny thunders, you know. And if you see those those photos of him, you know who would have who could have played Angus. Tell me if you agree with this. You know who could have played Johnny Thunders in the 90s for a movie would have probably been um, Robert Carlyle from motherfucking train spotting. Robert Carlyle easily, easily, easily could have played Johnny Thunders. That would have been a really good performance. And I'm thinking of him with that. I'm thinking of him with the pancake makeup on, you know, like that, that vibe totally would work tell me what you think about that angus oh we got tabletop bob here what's up how you doing tabletop bob thanks for dropping in saying hello we're just reading we're reading some some music history here okay hello big Bufa. how are you nice to see you back big Bufa tofu all right all right i'm back to this back to this so um, so Johnny used to wear this big pancake makeup, right? Um, and yeah, Angus agrees with me about Robert Carlyle. He would he would crush it, man. He would crush it. He would crush it. So all right, sorry. Um, really sad when you think about it. Um, really, really sad when you think about it. So one night, Johnny was sleeping on the sofa and I came out of my room and pancake makeup Johnny used to wear had rubbed off. And it looked like there was all this dial over him, all these black and blue blotches, big black and blue blotches on his skin. It was a dark sofa. So I thought he had been sweating and it had dyed his skin. I mean, that's what I thought. So when he woke up, I said, you better go wash up because I think the dye got all over you. I put him in the shower and scrubbed him. He was just so bad. He was so bad. I never saw anybody that bad in my life. He had these big scars and lumps and bumps and his feet were filthy. And he had big bruises where he had been shooting up all over his feet, on his legs, anywhere he could shoot up, abscesses everywhere. Could you imagine, dude? Could you friggin' imagine? Like, just being like, just having that much of a friggin' junk problem and just, just like, just like running out of like runway, like running out of places to shoot. What do you do when all your veins collapse? Like there's nothing you can, it's just, it's so, 
It really is upsetting, man. It really, really is. He was so gross. And I just wanted to scrub the evil out of him. But I didn't know that he had taken some bills. He was fine. And then all of a sudden, once he hit the water, well, I almost drowned with him. I literally almost killed him because he hit his head. The uh, Sorry. Because he hit his head. Uh, sorry. Blah, I can't read. Well, I almost drowned with him. I literally almost killed him because he hit his head. He he hit his. Oh, my God. <laughs> What's wrong with me? Because his head, because his head hit the tub and I thought he was going to die. I was so scared because I was thinking, what am I going to do with him now? I just compared, I just compared the picks. 100% could have played Johnny. Yes. Uh, Bob, it would totally have worked. Uh, interesting. Um, Leah Flower says Adrian Brody. That would have been, I, mm, I mean, he's a little Ichabod Crane-ish. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I, I think, I think, I think Robert Carlisle is the, uh, is, is the guy, is the guy. But yeah, man, I mean, that's, and you know, it's funny, like in a world with like fentanyl, how long would, how long would, um, would a guy like Johnny Thunders last in a world full of fentanyl? He wouldn't, he wouldn't, or maybe his tolerance would be so crazy. You know, they just made a movie about his death, actually. Down when he went down to New Orleans, it's kind of interesting. All right, um, Laura Allen. So Steve Baders wanted Didi to start a band with him in Paris. Steve told Didi to come to Paris that it was going to be great. Steve was uh, calling the house, saying, "We have a huge apartment. You could stay here." They were going to call the band the Whores of Babylon. And Caroline, Steve's girlfriend, had a gorgeous apartment in Paris. And mind you, so this is Steve Bader's. He's not playing with the, the Dead Boys anymore. He had another band with Brian James from The Damned called uh, Lords of the New Church. Check out that song, Fresh Flesh. Great track. Um, that's about the extent of my uh, Lord's knowledge. And now here he was. He was going to do a super group with Didi Ramone and Johnny Thunders. It's like crazy. Um. So they were going to do a band called the Horse of Babylon and Caroline. Blah, 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 blah. So Stiv wanted us to come stay with them in Paris and put them, put the new band together. James Slimmon. After the dead boys broke up, Stiv Baders had gone to LA where he did some power pop singles with Greg shot, right? Stiv Baders also had, you know, a, a little bit of a solo career. He put out, um, he, he put out uh, some live albums. He did. I think he did a self-titled record. Um, he also acted. He did some acting for John Waters. He's in polyester. He plays Bobo. Super memorable performance. So, right. Then he moved to London. He formed Lords of the New Church. Lords of the New Church were signed to IRS Records and put out three albums and a whole slew of singles. Uh, while they were on IRS, they were managed on and off by Miles Copeland. With that name sounds very familiar. Um, who didn't have much patience for them. And from what I've been told, didn't want to put up with a lot of Stiv Bader's BS and Brian James's BS. You know, always needed money and fights between the bands and drugs. Miles was a businessman and he didn't want to F around with it. And if they didn't keep up with what he wanted from them, he had a bunch of other acts. He could care less if they wanted to fall apart. From what I was told, 
when the Lords of the New Church finally did break up, Stibb found out that he was out of the band when he read an ad in the Melody Maker and the bad the band was placing uh, an ad for a new lead singer. That's how he found out, and he flipped. I would flip, too. I would flip, too, if I found out, here's my band. All of a sudden, I find out that they're replacing me like that. Michael Sticka, who is a dead boy's roadie who was involved with the, when Johnny Blitz got stabbed. Johnny Blitz is the drummer of the dead boys, who, by the way, when I was hanging out with Jimmy Zero backstage at the CBGB gallery, he said, and Johnny Blitz walked, and he said, do not mention the stabbing. He did not uh, a source, a tender subject, as you would imagine it would be, right? Um, Stiv was such an effing weasel. They flew me over to work the crew for Lords of the New Church, and I told Stiv, take it easy. But Stiv threw himself on a monitor, then was like, oh, my back is hurt. My back is hurt. So we all had to go back to London for two or three days off and then continue the tour. Stiv saying, oh, my back is hurt. So I went, well, we'll get you a doctor in London. You'll stay with us. He said, no, I got to get back to Paris. I got to go back to Caroline. Everybody's like totally freaking because we got this tour and there's no way we're not doing this tour. Everyone's life was left dangling and we were all on the effing ledge. So we auditioned people. Stiv found out about the ad we placed for the new lead singer and flew from Paris to London. And he did one show with us in London. He did the effing gig and said, F you guys, I'm out of here. So, you know, that's, you know, that's what's interesting about like all of these perspectives. We're, oh, we, what, what do we do on this channel? We always look at different POVs, right? And so you hear the story, uh, oh, that, you know, Stiv is being a diva. No, sorry. Stiv, Stiv found out that they were replacing him, you know, and flipped out and was like, I'm leaving. But then you hear the story from, a dead boy's roadie who knew Stiv pretty darn well, who who took a knife for for Johnny Blitz, right? Um, telling his side of the story, James Slimman. When Stiv was living in London, that's why I love the oral history format is my favorite because you just get to hear, you just get to hear so many different perspectives, man. And you hear it because, like, you know, that's the thing about like memory is like such the such a fluid thing. You know what's interesting about memory? Every time you remember something, you're not actually remembering it. You are remembering that you remember it. So you're remembering that you are remembering it. So it's like every memory is just like a memory of a memory <laughs> of a memory. Which I mean, it's not that's not exactly true. I mean, like you can like picture something in your head, but like you know, it's just that like memory is more fluid than we think. And that's why this format is really, really great. Um, when Stiv was living in London, he was with this girl, Angelica, uh, Alexandra. No, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Scratch that. Anastasia. Anastasia, because Stiv always called her Stacy. She was British and she was pretty and she had blonde hair and she practiced witchcraft. And they supposedly had some kind of wedding, a witchcraft ceremony. And it was never really valid or legal or anything. But he was pretty much in love with her and he and 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 her I liked. But then when he hooked up with Caroline and moved to Paris after the Lords of the New Church, whenever I would see Stiv, I couldn't have a conversation with him because he was too high, either on smack or crystal meth or a little bit of both. Laura Allen. When Dee Dee and I got to Paris to join Stiv and Caroline's place, to go to Stiv and Caroline's place, for the first couple of days, it was okay. We all went out to dinner with some guy who was the head of MTV of France. He was talking about 
putting out a Whores of Babylon album in Paris, but the dinner was really nice. Paris is very pretty, very romantic, and really nice, but things got ugly really fast. Johnny Thunders showed up in Paris about, okay, so now here is where Johnny Thunders comes into play. This is like the final piece of, of the, the story, really. It's not really a story in three parts, it's a story in two parts. It's kind of like a, a setup and a payoff, but we're going to have the afterward, the, uh, the, the final piece is coming next. So Johnny Thunders, and we see what state Johnny Thunders is in. He's got, you know, he's, he's got, uh, you know, he's lumpy and blotchy and, you know, um, AIDS is taking a toll on him. He's going to, you know, he doesn't have a lot of time left. Uh, he's a mess. He's a mess. Johnny Thunder shows up in Paris about a day or so after we did. And after that, it was a real nightmare. I think he was gigging around Europe and stuff. And mind you, Johnny Thunders has a child who never really knew Johnny. He had uh, uh, this a daughter with this woman from the Netherlands, I believe. And she, you know, Johnny Thunders had like five kids or something. Um, she is the only, she somehow is in control of his estate. And there's a lot of bad blood between her and her half siblings because, because, um, you know, she didn't really know her father and the other ones, the other kids did somewhat, you know, I mean, again, he, you know, he had a big drug problem. He's a traveling musician. So how well did they really know him? But whatever, it's not for me to judge. Um, interesting, just an interesting note there. So he's gigging around. He's gig. I mean, I, I don't even, I think she was born. I think, I think he died. I think he died like, right. I think she was just like a little girl when he died. Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. So he's gigging around Europe and stuff. Stiv was good friends with Johnny and Caroline really loved Johnny, but Didi had told Stiv, as long as Johnny's not going to be there, it's fine. Just don't have Johnny there. I guess Stiv didn't really know what to do. He didn't really want to take sides. So at this point, they've already established. They they've already established that like um, that that Didi and Johnny have a beef. It's never explicitly stated, but quite clearly because Johnny Johnny Thunders had stolen, not stud, appropriated. He appropriated Chinese rocks from Didi Ramon. Um, where, where was I in the narrative, uh, taking sides. So he didn't really want to take sides and Johnny was in Paris at the time. So the second day we we're guys, we're going to do comments in a second. I promise we're going to write out. We got to get through this chapter, three more pages and we'll, we'll take some comments. I guess Stiv didn't really know what to do. He didn't really want to take sides and Johnny was in Paris at the time. So the second day we were there, Johnny showed up at that point. Didi was cool. Kind of like letting his guard down, like, all right, what the hell? And then they started talking about starting a band together. It kind of just evolved after we went to Paris. It was going to be Stiv Baders, Johnny Thunders and Didi and this drummer guy, I think from Mike Monroe's band or Hanoi rocks. So it came time for them to rehearse and they decided to get all glamorous they got all done up for this rehearsal it was kind of cute now i do believe i do believe that there is i do believe there are recordings of the horse of babylon like from this rehearsal they are out there i think you can find them on youtube it's pretty rad um so i mean can you imagine i mean think about that 
the New York Dolls, the Dead Boys, and the Ramones coming together in one kind of band. I mean, that's pretty freaking cool. Um, so it came time for them to rehearse, and they decided to get all glamorous. They had gotten done up for the rehearsal. It was kind of cute. You know, all of them took two hours to look in the mirror, do their hair, you know, and all of them took two hours looking in the mirror. I can't imagine, I can't imagine, um, I can't imagine Johnny Ramone, uh, no, sorry, Didi Ramone doing that. That's weird. That's weird that he'd be looking in the mirror like that. Uh, but then the, sorry. So they're, they're, they're looking in the mirror, doing their hair, changing into really cool clothes. But then the driver of the van showed up two hours late. Didi's a real stickler for time. He told me that the Ramones were really on schedule. Like everything had to be on schedule. And even though it was a year and a half after he had left the Ramones. Okay. So I don't know if it could have been a year and a half after they left the Ramones because it had to be earlier than that because Didi left in 1989 and Stiv died in 91. I guess maybe it could have been. So this was right before Stiv Bader's died. Um, so even though it was a year and a half after he left the Ramones, he was still acting like he was on the Ramones schedule. So Didi got freaked out when the van showed up late. Stiv, yeah, probably thought like Johnny Ramone was going to come after him. Stiv was like, you're not in the Ramones anymore. It's a different city, a different band. Didi was like, I don't give a F. Uh, this is really BS, man. Stiv was trying to explain to us that Paris is different from New York and that the people take their time. And if someone says they're going to hang out at noon, they should show up at around two o'clock that it was really laid back. But Didi could not understand that. So when the guy with the van showed up two hours late, Didi was livid. So me, Didi, Stiv, Johnny Thunders, and Caroline got in the van. And then Stiv and Johnny had to get drugs. Johnny wanted to get like pot or hash or something. So we had to wait while he tried to cop drugs. Didi was saying, this is really BS, man. Johnny's always pulling this crap. Stiv said, Didi, you're not in the Ramones anymore, you know, like chill out. Me and Stiv were trying to calm him down, but Didi just jumped out of the van, ran after Johnny and found him eating a falafel and talking to some guy who, according to Didi, was a total beat artist and did not have anything on him. The dysfunction, man, the dysfunction is, is insane. So now here is B.B. Buell. And I actually, I saw the B.B. Buell band live at the Continental in New York City right after uh, CJ Ramon and Danny Ray did a Ramon set and Damien Pete Marshall from Sam Hain was in her band and I recognized him and that's how I first made contact with Damien and eventually I went over to his his, his work and we did a, an interview but that's where I was like holy crap that's Damien from Sam Hain playing with BB Buell uh, I thought, and she's the mother of Liv Tyler because she was with, you know, she was with Todd Rudrin, 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 whatever. Um, and he thought he was Liv Tyler's biological father. And as it turns out, it was Steven Tyler. So she says, I thought Stiv and Caroline were very destructive for one another. I also thought that they truly loved one another, and I definitely felt that they were made for each other. I don't think they were the greatest influence on one another, but that doesn't mean I didn't like her. Caroline truly loved Stiv. She gave him the best love that he ever had. She didn't leave him, and she didn't cheat on him. But did they take care of each other? Did they eat well? I don't think so. Did they get sleep? Nah. 
I don't think it was really on the agenda. All right, so this is Laura Allen. This is Dee Dee's girlfriend. Ready for this? Here's the big. Here's the big finish. Johnny Thunders was sleeping on the couch a lot when we were at Stiv and Caroline's. It was very sad. He was getting high a lot, and soon after we got there, my watch ended up getting stolen. My sunglasses disappeared, and Dee Dee's coat disappeared. This was January or February, and it was chilly. So when Dee Dee's coat disappeared, he started freaking out. Right away, Dee Dee was like, okay, Johnny's taking our stuff. This is really BS. So we go through Johnny's suitcase, and Dee Dee finds his overcoat. So Dee Dee snaps. He loses it. At this point, I couldn't control Dee Dee. He was in such a rage. He was like, it was like, oh, boy, he's going to do what he's going to do. Remember, Johnny's guitar. Sorry, remember Johnny's guitar? I think it was a Gibson Sunburst 1957 Sunburst. It's a really nice old guitar. Dee Dee smashed the guitar, breaks the guitar, and then he takes all this Drano and dishwasher detergent, anything he could get his hands on, Windex, whatever, and starts pouring it all over Johnny's clothes and then rips the clothes up, just shredding them. Oh, boy. Steve and Caroline had been out, and I think they had been partying at an after-hours club. So they show up at 6 o'clock in the morning when Dee Dee lost it. It was about 10 or 11 at night. So I stayed up all night with him trying to calm him down. Dee Dee was furious. So we stayed up waiting for Steve and Caroline to show up. When they finally showed up, Steve was fine, but Caroline seemed a bit out of it because she immediately ran downstairs and just hid in the bedroom and wouldn't come out. Dee Dee was really flipping out, freaking, totally freaking out. Dee Dee was saying, Laura's watch was stolen. Her sunglasses had been stolen. And we found my overcoat in Johnny's suitcase. Why did you have Johnny around when I told you at the beginning when the original game plan was not to have Johnny around? I knew this would happen. I knew it would happen. Dee Dee starts flipping out, grabs a knife and gets me and Stiv and this guy Gabba on the couch. Gabba was a really nice kid, a French guy in his early 20s. Gabba was a dead ringer for Joey Ramone. He was so impressed by the Ramones and obviously idolized Dee Dee and Johnny Thunders. And Dee Dee had Gabba on the couch with a knife. All of us. It was terrifying. Wow. That is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Dee Dee wanted dope. He wanted heroin. He was pointing the knife, being really menacing, saying, unless you get it for me, I might effing end you. End you, if you know what I mean. I'll start cutting you. I'm going to start cutting you. You have to give me drugs or else I'm going to end you all. Then Dee Dee wanted me to stab him. He said, here, take the knife. Take the knife. Stab me. Come on. You want to fight me? I was like, uh, no. So he says, well, Stiv, you want to fight me? Come on. Come on. Let's see if you can do it. Fight with me. Here, here, here. Take the knife. Try and stab me. And Dee Dee was like a ballerina with the knife. And Stiv, thank God, started to calm Dee Dee down, saying, Dee Dee, we're not your enemy. I'm really sorry about bringing Johnny around, but he's a friend. So calm down. Really sorry about bringing Johnny around. Just calm down. Eventually, Stiv made a phone call and some guy showed up with dope. Dee Dee got high and then he calmed down. By that time, Johnny's stuff had been ruined and the guitar, which had been Johnny's life, was smashed to bits. I wonder, you know, Johnny Thunders died soon after that. Maybe his life force was in that guitar. You know what I mean, Vern? Um, so, Steve and Dee Dee, blah, 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 blah. Um, 
were not your enemy. Yeah. So his clothes were all shredded. His guitar was smashed to bits. There was Drano on everything. So Stiv and Didi had talked about it. And Didi said, well, we should really get out of here because Johnny's going to be really upset about this. This is obviously not working. It's not going to fly. So Stiv had to make a phone call to the airline saying that there had been a death in the family and that there was an emergency. And Didi and I had to get on the next flight to New York. Stiv ended up calling a cab. He walked us down with our bags. He was really nice. And that was the last time we ever saw him. So Stiv died right after that. I think we're about to find that out right now. Cheetah Chrome, guitarist of the Dead Boys. I first heard about the fight from Didi. He started saying that Johnny Thunders and Caroline were having an affair, which was total BS. Then he start. Then he said that he cut up Johnny's clothes and broke his guitar and spilled Clorox on his clothes. I didn't know why. And when Johnny came back to New York, he was really, really hurt. And Johnny didn't know why either. I guess Dee Dee felt that Johnny stole Chinese rock. So at the heart of this issue, was it really the jacket? I mean, maybe on some level, but like the heart of the issue, the bottom of this beef was the fact that Johnny had stolen Chinese rocks from Dee Dee, a song that was revered and renowned and would never really be associated with Dee Dee Ramon and always associated with Johnny Thunders. And to this day, it is, you know, uh, Chinese rocks is, is, is a heartbreaker song, whether you want to admit it or not, even if he didn't write it and they have far more ownership over the song than Dee Dee Ramon or his legacy ever will. Unfortunately. Um, I guess Dee Dee felt that Johnny had stolen Chinese rocks. I talked to Stiv in Paris over the phone about it. And Stiv didn't know why Dee Dee did it either. I think Dee Dee, it was quite clear. Well, they don't know that. We're Again, we're hearing it from their point of view. Stiv was like, I don't know what the F is with Dee Dee. He, he was working out good. And then when Johnny got here, it all went to crap. <clears throat> Starting to lose my voice here. I don't know. I really don't. But sometimes I really can't stand Dee Dee's mind. Patty Giordano. When Johnny got back from Paris, he started staying with me at my apartment on 22nd Street, and he was really pissed off about what had happened with Dee Dee. He said that he was totally wrong. It was totally wrong what Dee Dee did and that Dee Dee was scum and that Johnny was going to get even with him. I mean, it was like a real major part of Johnny's life, and he had a very big vengeance or anger about it. I even attempted to fix the guitar for him. I brought it to the studio, and one of the engineers at the record company where I worked was going to fix it for me. Johnny was living with me when that came to pass. Johnny was one of the, sorry, Johnny was out one night at the scrap bar, and he told me that Dee Dee came in there and Dee Dee didn't see him. So Johnny, snuck up from behind and clocked him in the back of the head uh, with a little beer mug. Wait, back of the head a little with a beer mug. He told me he wailed on Dee Dee's head and then ran out the door. Johnny came straight home from there and he was all pumped up and he said, I got that effort back for doing what he did to me. I got him. I got him. He was like a little kid, you know. I got back at him and that was the end of it. James Slimman. Caroline called me from Paris and told me that Stiv had died. I had call. I had to call Stiv's parents and tell them. Apparently, Stiv and Caroline were out walking in Paris, and he got hit by a car. Supposedly, it was a drunk driver. Now, let me get this straight. Caroline said she took Stiv to see a doctor, and the doctor said he wasn't injured. And they went 
they went back home. They went to sleep and Stiv died in his sleep. It turned out he had a blood clot from the injury and the blood clot went to his brain. I guess it wasn't a bone fragment. And under the circumstances, you're not supposed to go home and go to sleep right there. But he did. Michael Sticka. It's funny because after all, because after all Stiv Baders and I had been through the one time when he left the Lords of the New Church, that one effing time, I said, you effing suck. Like you totally effing blow. You did an effing crappy thing, leaving the tour. Go back home and disgrace, blah, 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 blah. The one time I said crap to him, Stiv dies, and I never see him again. Isn't that a powerful lesson? Um, now, the, now, the reason why, remember that last part. This is super important, okay? We're, 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 we're landing the airplane now. I could finally put my glasses back on. Woo! We're landing the airplane because what we're going to talk about now, Johnny Thunders saw Didi. Didi didn't see Johnny Thunders. Johnny Thunders uh, nailed him in the back of a head with a mug. Now, this is from Medium, okay? This is from a guy named Stephen Trimboli. And he writes the following. Let's see. Let's share our screen. Here we go. But uh, boom, ready. Scrap bar. Johnny Thunders versus Didi Ramon. In the end, it's all doo-wop. If the book PKM, The Uncensored Oral History of Punk by Legs McNeil and Gillian McCain holds sway regarding the history of punk, whatever it was, then the last chapter, which had a story chronicling the seeming end rhetorically speaking, was played out in Scrap Bar. It might have played out in a dozen other places too, but I was only here for this one. I read the book when it first came out, and I do not recall what perception, if any, the author's interview was meant to exhibit. And when I spoke to Legs a few years later about it, he acknowledged that he wasn't there and that he had no context to add. By then, it was 2009, and he'd been looking for the green room. In Goodbye Monday, uh, in Goodbye Blue Monday, talk about a disconnect. You're standing in it, was my reply. Anyway, this is my story about that story. It involved an incident between Didi Ramon and Johnny Thunders. Had the drama and desperation you'd expect, had the drama and desperation you'd expect when junkies collide and could only be described using words like cartoon violence in hazed slow motion. I know this because I was there in between them. So we get the final perspective from a dude who was actually there. Um, and it's all these years later. Uh, so again, this is a perspective. Remember how we said history is written by the winners or whatever. History is written by certain people who were there. Like here's the perspective that we've never gotten to hear, you know, despite the fact that, you know, it's just one of the many perspectives is not going to make it into a book like this. The punk glow had already gone out on the musical candle some years back, replaced with metal, big hair, glam, stripper guns, and roses, rock. They were all in scrap bar whenever they were in town. Mind you, all of those guys taking what they got from the New York Dolls. It was their time to strut. Sebastian Bach versus Axl Rose was what mattered now. The same thing would happen a few years later when Nirvana hit. Imagine watching... Nirvana teen spirit video standing next to a guy with big black hair bushing out 
from a flat-brimmed leather hat decked in black shirt and pants and studded motorcycle jacket, silver and chrome chains, black snakeskin boots, and armloads of black gasket rings up to his wrist, who at the video's conclusion turns and says, that's not going to last. Ouch. I bursted out. I busted out laughing. What? Say goodbye, guy. It's over for you. You're done. Maybe it's time to go country. And that did happen quite a bit. We've been witnessing this since, well, for me, doo-wop Elvis and the Beatles. It happens almost to everybody. Ask David Lee Roth or Warren. Of course, some bands and performers transcend their time and remain vital, whether by reinvention or just being who they are. Dylan, Lennon, Iggy, Bowie, David Byrne, Patti Smith, Deborah Harry, Joey Ramone, who felt the heat of anonymity but got past it. When a word like legend is thrown around, not everybody makes the cut. Over the years at Scrap Bar, I had gotten to know Johnny Thunders, a sweetheart with a truckload of demons all wearing heroin union labels. I would continually watch him kick, only to go back. Because of this, whenever he'd asked to play an acoustic set here, I'd tell him, I'd love you to, but you're going to nod halfway through the second song. And he'd tell me, no, I'm good now. And so on, until one day I said, okay, we'll set you in the front corner of the bar tomorrow night at 11 o'clock. And he showed up, acoustic guitar in hand. We had a slightly full house because word got out about Johnny's set. He appeared from the office hallway at the bar's back, carrying his guitar, walking to the front of the bar, sat down and began to play. He lasted through the first song. That was it. Heather, a tall, beautiful redhead who worked as our female security guard bouncer, kicked dope seven years earlier and was one of Johnny's best friends, helped him down from the bar top and shuttled him to a bench corner up front, put his guitar in the office and let him nod off. I blame myself for letting him use the office to get ready. That was that. Regarding Dee Dee, we knew each other, we knew of each other, but he always seemed otherwise engaged, whether too high, uncomfortably in search of drugs, money, or both. The night of the junkie showdown, the bar was crowded. Johnny and I were walking towards the back. I it may have been during one of his pleas to perform or an apology following the time explained earlier. I don't remember. I bought him a beer, knowing it was already knowing that he was already buzzed on that other crap. Um, but what the hell? At the end of the bar, in an area a few feet before the restrooms and video games on the right side, stood Didi, also heavily pinned. As Johnny moved towards him, he raised his beer mug. I wonder if he was going to try and keep it above the crowd or if he was going to spill it on Didi. I was not privy to their drama. So if they were at odds, it was news to me. What unfolded happened in slow motion, not because of the perception of violence that made it seem that way, but because it was two stone junkies about to go at it. Johnny's plan, I think, was to bust the beer mug on Dee Dee's head, but he failed horribly. I got in between them, but Johnny's outstretched arm reached its mark with the beer mug, meeting the left side of Dee Dee's head above the temple and the ear. This wasn't a crash. It was a kiss. Upon contact, like a 45 RPM on 33, I heard a loud, slow motion. Oh. 
coming from Didi as he stepped up, fell back as the weed smoking bikers in the back moved up to buffer him in the event that he was going to hit the ground. Johnny tried to move towards him, but I moved him away asking what the F is this and continued moving him toward the front of the bar. The actual event was over in seconds. The drama following, sorry, the drama following a while longer with Didi holding the side of his head and kept lengthening the owl going, going. So he kept going, oh, friends and fans gathered around to be a part of the moment. Johnny stayed up front after for a few minutes and then left. I guess testosterone triumphed heroin that night. Returning to the back, I looked in on Didi. He still had his left hand covering the side of his head. I walked to the nearest bartender. I said, quick, give me $50 from the register and returned. You okay? I asked my head, my head in a pained dope slur. Listen, he's gone. I'm sure you don't want the cops in on this. Casually handing him the folded cash in his other hand. I said, take this and do yourself a favor. I looked at his head where his injury was. There wasn't even a bump. I don't think Johnny's assault could have bruised a grape, but that's just my opinion. For the following two or three weeks, I would be visited by Dee Dee complaining of complications from his injury. Each of these visits required another $50 in medical fees, quote unquote. Johnny returned and promised never to do what he did again. A while later, Johnny got clean or at least got on the methadone program and came to Scrap Bar to say goodbye. He was moving to New Orleans and he looked happy and full of the kind of hope that precipitates a new adventure, although it wasn't really because he was going to die. He was going to die of AIDS at some point. I mean, he was, he was, he was HIV positive. Um, it had been the last time any of us would see him. He'd be dead a very short time later after moving there from what everyone heard back then. His last hours on earth were not good ones. Dee would eventually get clean too and stay that way for a while, but would OD about a year or so after jo Joey Ramone's death from cancer. But you already knew that. That was a good read and provides us with a perspective that, you know, is different from the exaggeration that we heard in the book. So that's why you have that sort of stuff. Sean is here and he says, um, all my non-Jewish friends say I'm a 39-year-old Larry David. Love the channel, Misfits, Meyer Lansky, Johnny Thunders, Morning Noise. Hell yeah. Thanks, Sean. Glad you like it. You know, and, you know, uh, us Jews, we do, you know, we do have Jews by association. So, you know, maybe you're just a Jew by association. That that happens sometimes, too. You could still be a part of the tribe in, in that sort of way. Every punk band does have a Johnny. This is true. I have to repeat it two times because of my age. Dan says, I like hated the Gigi Allen documentary when talking with Didi because Didi almost joined Gigi Allen. Um, and they said the band name Gigi Allen and the murder junkies and Didi didn't know, didn't even know the name. Oh my God. Yeah. They almost, they almost, uh, they almost played. Ema D says, we remember more if we hear ourselves say it and read it out loud. That's very true. Tabletop Bob says, memories are inception. Yes. Um, you remember how Bufa says you remember how you want it to be. Good point. Good point. Um, 
G.G. Allen did nothing wrong. Oh, my God. I dislike G.G. Allen, but he's obviously Harold uh, as a rock and roll hero. I think I think he's I think he's I'm not a fan of G.G. Allen. I actually talked about this on uh, TikTok. In case you didn't know, I'm on TikTok, too. So go seek that out. I mean, a lot of it's all this stuff is basically the same. But someone asked me my thoughts on G.G. Allen or someone mentioned G.G. Allen. And I gave my unsolicited thoughts about it, I think, maybe. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's our show, really. A, 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 a super-duper detailed deep dive. If you enjoyed this, we could talk more about... Please, uh, my God, I almost said the name out loud. That would have been bad. We could talk more about this in the future. We could We could explore other stories from the book there's so much in there but that was just that was something i wanted to cover for a long time talking about that rivalry that beef between johnny thunders and didi ramon ultimately i don't know if it made sense the way i laid it out you know it's not like uh you know it's it's really just more about it's 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 not so much i mean there is cause and effect but it's also like thematic it's just very thematic and at the core of the theme is the song chinese rocks and everything that happened is sort of like an extenuation of of that stuff, you know. Lexington, Kentucky. I, I think Sean is just starting. Sean is just starting to watch the show, so he's commenting along. Appreciate that, Sean. Love the commentary. Leave it in the comments. Um, Big Bufa says yes, please. I love hearing about it and learning more about it, Jeff. Of course. Tell me, has the video been choppy this whole time? Because on my end, I've like kind of like got like flash frames, and I can't tell if if it if that is the case. I don't know. Dan, I have to disagree with you. I think I think his best music is the Jabbers album. Always was, is, and shall be, or whatever. That album, all eleven songs. That album, note for note, pound for pound, is is really good. The Jabbers are a really good band and Gigi legitimately was trying to be a singer and that's why it worked, you know? Um, and shortly after that, it just became about, you know, defecating on stage and, you know, eating it or, you know, uh, assaulting people. Sometimes it freezes, but I'm still able to hear you. Well, that's good. Yeah. It's so good, Dan. It's so good. I'm such a fan of that album. It's, it, it's a good album. But I, so it's like I have to always, I have to always notate when talking about it, uh, talking about it. So, Rue Morg on the sly, always, always in the background. Rue is, Rue, video is a bit choppy, but audio is fine. Thank you. Well, that's gonna change very soon, very, very soon. Because I have a special cable that I'm going to connect to the system. And very soon, we will never deal with this stupid issue ever again. And that will be that. Um, so, yeah, make sure you're subscribed. I never say that enough. Subscribe to the channel. Check stuff out. More stuff coming. Blah, 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 blah. More shows coming. We're going to do some another show real soon. I'll set it up. I'm so glad to have the Mac the Mac is back, baby. And then and this this webcam situation, I'm loving it. I just gotta figure out the uh gotta deal with the uh Wi-Fi and the uh cabling situation. And once that's all set, we're gonna be in really, really, really good shape. Okay. 
Good night, everybody. It's late. I got to wake up super early at the crack of like six o'clock tomorrow, which is not going to be fun. Been a while since we've done such a long show. Feels good. Let's end with the uh, Patreone like we do sometimes. Peace, hair grease. I'll see you real soon. Hey, guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it going to be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. (laughs) So right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. (laughs) The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.